All right, so we're in Hebrews 7, and after an interlude with exhortations and admonitions, don't fall away, don't apostatize, the author again picks up the topic of Christ's priesthood. And one of my favorite New Testament commentators or theologians, Simone Kistemacher, if you've ever seen the big, it's red binding New Testament commentary, uh, commentary series, I think it's 13 volumes through the New Testament, um, that uh, Simone Kistemacher is one of the two authors in that. And he calls this chapter the heart of the doctrinal teaching of the book. That is everything else he says leading up to this is introductory, the first six chapters. And seven is where you really get to the point or the main thrust of the book of Hebrews. And I, I'm okay with that as long as introductory means foundational. I don't think anything we've covered up to this point is of less importance than what happens in this chapter and beyond, but it is essential to understand this chapter and to understand the, the point of the whole book. So it's certainly foundational. Truths building upon more truths that, that lead up to this chapter, which is the doctrinal highlight of the book. And what you have is another comparison between Christ and something or someone that came before for the purpose of showing how Christ is superior, the theme of the book. And this time it's going to be Christ's priesthood that's compared. And his priesthood is going to be compared not as, again, put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish hearer listening to this letter for the first time. And if you talk about comparing Christ to another priest, to the greatest of all priests, who are you going to compare Christ to? If not Levi himself, somebody from the line of Levi. The Levites were the tribe of the priests. And so the question that the author of this letter starts with is not what the reader or the hearer would expect. How is it that Christ is better than Levi? But the question is, what type of priesthood is Christ in? And it's going to get into a rather technical discussion about the priesthood of Christ to show that he's superior. And this is one of those times where it's easy to gloss over some of the technicalities and some of the non-obvious stuff and just say, I'm not sure why that matters. But I point you back to uh, my sermon about why this stuff matters. These details are the details of God's promises, the specific details that the author of Hebrews is pointing to and drawing out and connecting to Jesus, those are the details and the specifics of the promises that God had been making for thousands of years. So it absolutely is the case that the details matter because it's in the details that we see whether or not God has kept his promises. It would be an interesting uh, mental experiment to figure out if God provided salvation but did not keep his promises, would you care? If God had promised, here, I'm going to save my people and here's exactly how I'm going to do it. And then when it came time to save, God did provide salvation, but not the way he said he would. He broke all those promises. Would you care? And my answer is I wouldn't. I wouldn't care that God had offered salvation because he broke his promises. So I can't trust that this is going to stick around, that this is actually going to save me, that this is going to work. So the single most important thing for any of us to learn about God is that he is trustworthy. And the details are where we can find out whether or not that's true. 
So there's a problem here then with Jesus. If Jesus is going to be the great high priest who provides actual salvation for his people, how can he be a priest if he's not from the tribe of Levi? Every priest in Israel for thousands of years now is from the tribe of Levi. You can't be a priest and not be in the tribe of Levi with one exception. And Christ shows us and remind the author of Hebrews reminds us of that exception, which is that Christ is a priest from a superior line, not from the line of Levi, not from the line of uh, ultimately Aaron, but the line of Melchizedek. And so if this is true, then God will have kept the promise that the Savior will be a priest, will be a priest from the line of Melchizedek, will be the greatest of the high priests who can actually make sacrifice for the sins of his people. So this is a big if that the author of Hebrews is is throwing out there. And that's why he gets into so much detail about how we will consider it. So in Hebrews 7, he starts out this way. Um, Remember the way Hebrews 6 ended, which is about the certainty of God's promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. Talks about why God would swear by himself. And then at the end of that, it says, we have, because God is trustworthy, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's the claim of chapter six, that God is totally trustworthy. His promises are certain. (coughs) And because Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek, he is the high priest. So then chapter seven is explaining that for this Melchizedek, King of Salem, priest of the most high God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the Kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a 10th part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem. That is King of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So this is the comparison with Melchizedek and Melchizedek is mentioned in only two places in the Bible other than this, or two places in the old Testament. One is Genesis 14. Uh, Stephen, will you read that? After his return from the defeat of Chedor Leomar, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shebeth, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread of the sandal or strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eskel, and Mamre, Mamre take their share. I gave Stephen the easy text. Nothing like a good run of Hebrew names. All right, so in Genesis 14, we have this encounter. Abraham is coming back from battle. 
and he encounters this priest. And in the context of, a, of Genesis 14, there's not very much there that makes you think this is terribly significant. He's just, he's having this interaction with this other guy. They have this transaction. There's a tithe paid. There's a blessing and he moves on. And the story does not go back to this whatsoever. Then in Psalm 110, it's mentioned again. Who's got Psalm 110? I do. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So now in Psalm 110, we've got the first reference in the Bible back to this Melchizedek that we had just learned about or that barely learned about. And all of a sudden, it's in the context of a messianic psalm, a psalm about Jesus. My Lord says to my Lord, God, the father says to the savior, the Messiah, go and make your enemies a footstool, go and rule. All of this belongs to you. So this is a messianic psalm. And then it says about this Messiah, you are a priest forever. No surprise there in the order of Melchizedek. So the Messiah will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And here in Hebrews, the author starts out by telling us several important things about Melchizedek. But it's not any new information. It's looking back at Genesis 14, helping us pick up on details that we almost certainly would have missed the first time because we wouldn't have really been paying attention. The first is his name. So Melchizedek is a combination of two Hebrew words, Melech and Zedek. Melech is king. Zedek is righteousness or goodness. So his name literally means my king is righteousness. And you think what people in the Old Testament have all kinds of names that are stuff like that. So you hear it, it's fine. All right, king of righteousness. But it, once in Psalm 110, you think about the Messiah being the king of righteousness. You think about Jesus being in the line of the king of righteousness. You think, oh, I see what God did there. There's some typology. And then that's his name. But what does it say is his title? It says that he's actually the king of somewhere. Where is he the king of? Anybody remember what we... Salem. What does Salem mean? Hebrews tells us it means peace. He is the king of peace. So his name is my king is righteousness and he is the king of the place called peace. So there is a ton of typology here uh, for us to, to look at in retrospect and say, oh, I see what God was doing. Several of Jesus's titles are used of Melchizedek. Jesus is the king of peace. Melchizedek was called the king of peace. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Melchizedek was called the king of righteousness. The author of Hebrews points out something else about Melchizedek that we wouldn't have given a second thought about whatsoever when we heard Stephen read that. But think about it in contrast to all the other things you read in the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis. When an important character is introduced, the Old Testament always, little asterisk, it doesn't happen every single time, but almost every single time, the Old Testament teaches you two things about important characters. 
It teaches you who their parents are. Think about how often the New Testament refers to somebody as son of so-and-so, right? The New Testament care, uh, Old Testament cares about genealogies, especially if you're going to talk about a priest. Priests, you think about the stories, if you've read in the prophets, when the Jews returned from exile, like in Daniel, and they talk about when, uh, when they go back, people are going to have to get their different jobs back. And how are the priests, several generations later, going to be able to prove that they should be priests and get their jobs back? Well, they have to be able to show their genealogies. And so Daniel has this whole section where it talks about, here are the people who claim to be priests but couldn't prove it from their genealogies. Genealogies are incredibly important in an Old Testament context. And what do we know about Melchizedek's mother and father? Nothing. We know nothing. He appears from nowhere. He is connected to no one. It's not that he doesn't have a mother or father. He's not magic man. It's that they're not given to you. And they're very purposefully not given to you if you look at that in contrast to it's normally given. It's information that would normally be included. The other thing that you learn in the Bible about almost every important character in the Old Testament is, and his years were 107, and then he died. And his years were 182, and he died. And his years were 56, and he died. We have no idea how, uh, when he was born, how old he was, or when he died. So we got no genealogy, we got no birth, we got no death. Information that is normally really, really important. Well, why would it be left out? Moses, who wrote Genesis, would leave that out on purpose. And Moses wouldn't even necessarily know why God was leading him to leave that information out. Or sometimes we see in the Old Testament, the author has one purpose that's legitimate, and God has a multi-layered purpose. And in this case, God's multi-layered purpose is it shows the connection to Jesus all the more clearly. The purpose of being introduced to Melchizedek in Genesis is so that we can see Christ more clearly in Melchizedek as we go back and we see what God was doing. It's not making the argument that Melchizedek was eternal, only that the biblical account purposely leaves out the genealogy and the birth and the death that we would expect. We know that Adam lived 930 years. We know that Noah lived 950. Abraham lived 175. We have no idea how long Melchizedek lived, when he was born, when he died, who was his mother, who was his father. He is something entirely different from all the genealogies that we will come to know and become uh, familiar and comfortable with. And so this Melchizedek character, the Jews would know and remember, again, we got two places, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, but it's not what they would expect as they think about Jesus being the great high priest. So that's the argument that gets made in the first three verses there in Hebrews 7, is this Melchizedek character is what we call a type of Christ. There are ways that David was a type of Christ. We'll talk about that when we talk about his kingship in a little bit. But the, the technical term in biblical scholarship is a type of something, or in all literature, actually. If one person is supposed to be a representation, an image, like a human analogy or metaphor for someone else, that is a type. And that's what we have with Melchizedek. Then, so any, any questions about that? Any questions about Melchizedek, the person? And then what the author is going to do is spend the rest of chapter 7 explaining the myriad of ways that Jesus is superior to Melchizedek.
So he was a real guy. He wasn't mm-hmm. an, an, an angel or... We have ev- I don't think he ever knew he was a real guy. Yeah, we have every reason to believe that that is a real encounter with a real man, real king, real priest, in part because the... The author of Hebrews is making the argument that it's important that Jesus is from that genealogy, not, not, so we don't know before Melchizedek, but the argument of Hebrews is Jesus is from that line the same way that you would expect a priest to be from the line of Levi. And so he was long before the tribes of Jacob, Mm -hmm. but we trust that Judah came. It all came from there. (laughs) Yep. How did Abraham know that he would like... How did he know he was such a great... That is the great question. So we will get to that as we talk to... We don't know how Abraham knew. But it is very clear that Abraham did immediately know. And we'll talk about why that is. So uh, that's a great transition. There are seven... Because that's perfect. There are seven reasons that the author of Hebrews points to as Christ being superior to uh, Levi, to the tribe, to those priests. So Melchizedek's priesthood being superior to the Levitical priesthood. Or the uh, All right, first, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. So verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Abraham was a great man. Second Chronicles, I didn't give anybody Second Chronicles 20, did I? Abraham is called a friend of God. Uh, Isaiah 51 you give somebody that? Isaiah refers to Abraham as the patriarch, as the father of the faith, the father of God's people. And the author of Hebrews picks on that here. However, when Abraham comes face to face with Melchizedek, Abraham does not act like the superior person in the position of honor. Abraham, and think about the context. I don't expect you to to have that section of Genesis memorized. But the context here is Abraham is returning from defeating four kings in northern Canaan and setting five kings free. That moment when Abraham returns on the road and meets Melchizedek is the height of his greatness. It is Abraham at his biggest and baddest and most successful and best. And so coming off those victories, walking down the road with his spoils, he encounters Melchizedek and he tithes to him. And just like the Levitical priests receive the tithes from the people, Melchizedek doesn't push back. He receives Abraham's tithe. And so the father of the Jews, the patriarch, is tithing to an entirely different priest. Abraham had sworn an oath uh, that Stephen read in in, uh, Genesis 14 that he would not keep any of the spoils for himself. And so he tithes them all. He recognized Melchizedek uh, and, and gives Melchizedek his tithe portion in preparation to be rid of the rest of it. And moreover, in as much as Abraham tithed, tithed to Melchizedek, we got to think about the way the Bible teaches us to think about these families and these tribes. In as much as Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, Aaron tithed to Melchizedek. 
If one priest ties to another priest, the entire line is tithing to the other line and recognizing the superiority. The one who is greater is the one who receives the tithe. And so verse 9 is key. It says, one, this is Hebrews 7. Whenever I refer to just a verse, I'm back in Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Abraham literally gave him, the word in Hebrew, is a tenth of the top of the heap. Abraham gave him not just an arbitrary 10%, gave him the best that he had. So Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. Secondly, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So he says, but this man who does not have his descent received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse seven, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So the author of the Hebrews reminding his Jewish audience already knows this. He's teaching us this. It is beyond dispute. Abraham is the height of patriarchalism in the Old Testament. There is nobody higher on the Jewish food chain. If a Jew is going to be blessed by someone, there is nothing better you could ever have than the blessing of Abraham. In this case, however, Abraham is the one who gets, not gives the blessing. The greater blesses the lesser. Uh, and Abraham received it. It's not like Abraham said, hey, no, I bless you too. No, he received it. He tithed. Third, Christ's priesthood is more effective. So now the author asks us to think about the effectiveness of the priesthoods. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And then on down in verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So this is the author of the letter to the Hebrews saying, it's not that the priesthood of Aaron was ineffective. It's not that it was pointless. It's that it wasn't complete. And if it was complete, why would you need a second line of priests? The line of Aaron always pointed to the one, the true priest, who would accomplish salvation. So it's it's not totally useless, but it's reemphasizing the same idea that was presented in the Old Testament, which is people's sins are not forgiven by bulls and goats. That's just not how it works. And if it was, why did they have to keep doing it again and again and again? God never instituted the old covenant as the final word. And this is one of these places where we so strongly disagree with, you know, frankly, our Baptistic brothers and sisters who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not a heaven and hell issue, but they look at the Old Testament. And if I could draw, they genuinely say that God. So this is uh, creation is always a tree. I always draw a down arrow for the fall. That's when sin enters the world. Then they have a dispensation. You've heard that word dispensation before. Dispensation is just another fancy word for a period of time with a plan. So this is the dispensation of the Jews. This is the plan of Israel. And God was actually, in their mind, trying to save them by the sacrificial system. And because of their disobedience... They uh, ultimately failed. And so AD 70, God says, we're going to put that whole dispensation on hold. I'm done dealing with the Jews for now. 
Now I'm in the age of the church. The church gets saved through a different mechanism, which is Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ, through which their sins are forgiven, will be done with them, will rapture them away, and God will return back to that plan. That's what dispensationalism means. There's two dispensations, two different plans. And what the author of the, of, of the letter to the Hebrews is saying, it's not that this was a different dispensation. It's not that this was pointless. It's that that always pointed to this. And so what Christ actually did was the fulfillment, was the completion of all of that. God never instituted the old covenant as the final word. It's not like that's the plan that failed before God came up with the better plan. He instituted this plan to point forward to the fulfillment of his promises in Jesus Christ. And it's the same as this plan, which looks backward to those promises, so that there is no name in heaven or on earth, by which men can be saved, except the name of Jesus Christ. Ever, forever and ever. Amen. And so that's why Christ's priesthood is actually more effective. Fourth, Christ's priesthood has a better tribe. There was never a priest other than Melchizedek who did not descend from Levi. So how could Christ be a priest at all? Well, we've already said he was descended from a better line. Why is Judah a better line than Levi? Because in the line of Levi, you can only ever be a priest. But in the line of Judah, you can be a king. (laughs) And from Melchizedek, you can be priest and king. You see how now we're two-thirds of the way to where we need to be? So the line of Judah is superior because it's the line of kings. No other priest, save Melchizedek, could have done this. Be both the king, the Zedek, and bring the righteousness as, uh, sorry, the Melech, which is king, and the righteousness, Zedek, as a priest. The closest you get to this ever is who? Who is the closest in the Bible to king and priest? David, because David is a king who wore the ephod, which is the priestly garment. And there's something about David we don't fully know, except this is what God wanted it to be, that that gave him this special privilege, that David was a type of Christ in a very explicit way. Who's got Zechariah 6? And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and it shall... And he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. There shall be a priest on the king's throne and there will be peace. Or I think the uh, other translations say there will be harmony between the two. Harmony between king and and priest. The thing that marked the messianic reign was that he was a king also, not just a priest. And so when you get into passages like Zechariah 6, it, it, I just want to make the point again, these are complex, detailed prophecies, incredibly detailed prophecies, and they're all over the Bible. And so it's worth studying and doing a little bit more homework to figure out, wow, 
God kept every single little detail of his promises. Sometimes around Christmas we t- or Easter, we talk about how cool some of those promises are. The promise that there wouldn't be bones broken, the pro- you know, that it would be a death on a tree, that it would, all these things. It is very much the case that there are complex, detailed prophecies all over the Bible, and Christ fulfills them all. So it's no small matter that Christ, not being from the tribe of Levi, uh, being from the t- tribe of Judah, could be both priest and king. A royal priesthood. You've heard that expression before. That's not something that the descendants of Aaron can have. There is no royal priesthood among the Levites. They can't be royal. It's not the line of kings. Um, and what this enables is Jesus can take the place of every party in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus is God, so he is the one being appeased. Jesus is the ruler of the people. Jesus is the priest, the one making sacrifice on their behalf. Jesus is the sacrifice that is offered on their behalf. And he is man. He is of the kind for whom the sacrifice is required. So every single thing that was required in that old, quote-unquote, dispensation... Jesus fulfills every one of those, which is a really pointless and stupid thing to do if they're not intended to be connected. Um, and of course they are connected. All right, I'm going to stop there and save the next three for next week because i got more to talk about. Any questions about those first four? The reasons why Christ is superior to Melchizedek, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Christ has the more effective priesthood, and Christ has the better tribe. What about the third uh, Christ is... Prophet, yeah, we'll talk about some prophet stuff later. But prophet, the good news about prophet is it required no particular genealogy. So prophet just meant one who had the word of God and delivered it to the people of God. And so there were many kings. David was a prophetic king. There were many kings who were able to do that, functioned in a very prophetic role in the prophetic books like Isaiah.